I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche It's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you be surprised at the info you get Is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science Then let Hello them and talk and another one to JK Plus One I, got some I am not your host, PTF uh, I think he said he was in his survivor pool Taking the Chiefs to lose So We know where he is um, I am your host, Jonathan Kinchin, and uh, thank you for joining us. Look, I'm going to be straight up with you and, and, and quick. We've got about a two-hour episode, and it's a little bit of a different path than what you've heard on the first 30, 31 episodes of this show. I lose count all the time. Um, this is a conversation that I had with two dear friends of mine, uh, Lafitte Pinkai III, as well as Richie Migliori. Um, it was a, a conversation that was, I don't want to say inspired, it's the wrong word, but I, I didn't take school serious enough to know the right word to say inspired, uh, outside of inspired, the, the, the other, the opposite, or not the opposite, but a different vibe. But this, this conversation was, was, came from uh, the unfortunate events of the, the passing of Avery Wisman, uh, a writer who... Uh, who has recently passed, and uh, there's a, a large conversation around the fact that uh, in some way contributed the, the stresses of being a jockey, mental health, and, and things of that nature. And we wanted to talk about mental health. We wanted to talk about the stresses of being a jockey. And I recorded this after the conversation, so I can kind of give you a heads up of what you're about to hear. We, we talk a lot about... Um, the stresses of a jockey, Lafitte obviously being the son of a, of a Hall of Fame rider, uh, Richie being a champion rider in his own right, and we talk about that. But we also just like turn into three guys talking about mental health. Uh, we talk, we turn into three guys talking about therapy, uh, three guys talking about um, sadness, depression, alcoholism, addiction. Social media, we, we got a long run talking about social media, the impacts of social media, and, and, and that's where we go. So th- there is some fun kind of behind-the-scenes nuggets in terms of racing that I know that uh, people really like about the JK Plus One series, uh, but there's also just a conversation about mental health, and, and our goal with this conversation is hoping that people will either A, uh, seek, uh, seek better mental health for themselves, uh, or B, help someone around them that, that might have some, uh, some issues they're trying to work through. And, uh, that's what it is. And that's the world we live in. And we wanted to make sure that we brought it to the, to the forefront. And, and I can assure you that, 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 uh, next week we'll be right back to the light silliness. Maybe there is some in here, but, but, but not a ton. So that's, that's the warning I have for you here. Uh, I want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing. Uh, for helping us make this possible. And, and really, you know, this is an episode that, that uh, hopefully they're proud of being aligned with. It, it's for the greater good of this world and, and obviously this game. Um, want to give them a, a, a passive congratulations. I feel like they were probably a little disappointed with Ever So Mischievous, who ran on Saturday at Aqueduct. Uh, there was a big story out on this horse, the talent that he had. 
and came up a little bit short, but came up short with a very fast buyer speed figure. I think the, the winner got a 91 maybe. So the ever so mischievous who, who got nailed right there uh, probably got a 90. I didn't look it up, but um, right there. And, and really excited. I, I think this horse is going to appreciate going a little bit longer maybe, or maybe needed to start. Um, I feel like this is a stakes horse, so it's, it's going to be exciting to, to watch ever so mischievous um, throughout the rest of his three-year-old year for, for our friends at Qatar Racing. So, like I said, I won't hold you up anymore. It's a pretty long episode. I hope you enjoy it. I hope that it's enlightening. I hope that you'll share it, and I hope that it will uh, impact uh, you, at least in some way, to, to either help yourself or help somebody around you. And uh, that's it, my friends, Richie and Lafitte. Well, you know, I kind of wish that everyone was around for the pre-conversations about this. So if the pre-conversations are any anywhere close to what we, we give you here, I, I think that this is going to be one of the things I'm most proud of that I've done on this JK plus one. No offense, Richie, with our one-on-one episode. No offense, Lafitte, for our one-on-one episode. Um, but two of my dear friends in the world, outside of the professional world, uh, two people that I fanboyed over at one point before I got to be friendly with them. And, uh, and, and now I'm at a place where when I talk to them, they ask me how my son's doing. It's a little surreal. Uh, two of my best friends in the world, Lafitte Pinkai the third, Richie Migliori. Hey, you Jonathan, don't fanboy anymore? You don't fanboy anymore? <laughs> I fanboy over Richie, but not you. <laughs> tends to wear off when your neighbor's in Saratoga. Absolutely. Richie, good to good to hear from you. Yeah, guys, it's good good to be here. Uh, talk about some serious issues with you guys. Yeah, and so let me set this up. Um, I might have I usually record this part of the podcast before I do the intro. Um, so I don't know what I said on the intro. So if I'm redundant, sorry, but maybe I'll just let this live. This is a conversation that Lafitte, myself, and Richie thought about having. Um, with the unfortunate events earlier this year with uh, Avery Wisman, uh, a rider who, who passed. And it's been well-documented that there's been some, they, they, the family is well-documented that, that, that there were some struggles with uh, the career and, and what it meant. And, 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 and it's been assumed, and I'll read between the lines, I'm not a doctor and, and I'm not a journalist either, that it, it, there's something that was a miss with the personal life, the mental health, as it pertains to the career of being a rider. And, you know, everyone knows Richie was a, a champion jockey and, and Richie's prepared to talk about some of his struggles and some of the things that he went through in his life as it pertains to his career. And then Lafitte, um, who mental health is a very important part of his life. It's had a huge impact on his life. I'll let him tell his story, how, how it pertains, but also his father being a champion rider as well, he has a, a different perspective to how that career can affect uh, the rider. And then me as a horse player, I mean, excuse me, uh, could, the, that can that career can affect a, a human being as a as a son or as a spouse, a friend, family member. And then for me as a horse player, you know, I've always been one of the horse players that tries to not bash a rider. I try to blame bad beats on my own poor opinion. But we do know that there's mistakes that are made, things of that nature. But I, I've always felt, and I always 
I don't, I say it in a, in, in kind of in a joking way when I'm on the show, but like, I'm not out there risking my life. So who am I to say whether it was a good decision or not? I, I, I think it's a very tough career. And I think that as an industry, we should all be aware of the mental and physical impacts that the riders have to endure and period enter, enter. I think it's also very important to talk about mental health in this day and age. And I think it's a very interesting conversation between three men because there's a stigma when it comes to mental health that it, that it equals weakness. And um, I know we've all been touched by mental health and how it can impact your life. I'll get into it a little bit later, but I think that, you know, I'm not sure my father wouldn't still be here if it wasn't for mental health. So um, I'll, that's the intro to what we're going to be doing. It's, it's not going to be as light and fluffy as some of the, some of the shit I normally do. Um, but I think it's an important conversation. Um, Richie, we'll start with you um, as the guy who's been on top of these four-legged animals more than anyone else. How impactful was uh, your mental health through your entire career compared to uh, a guy that, that, that put on a suit and tie and went to the office every day? Well, it was, it was a struggle my entire career. Um, even leading up to the start of my career, um, you leave home so young to pursue something so different and so difficult and really hard to relate to by people that haven't tried to, you know, undertake that endeavor. Um, you, you know, I, so I, I've said this to, you know, people, the saddest, loneliest day of my life was 14 years old in a tack room at Hialeah on Christmas day alone. Um, you know, went to the track kitchen to have Christmas dinner and then back in my room. Um, and it's, that's just not a natural thing for a young person to be separated from their family on their own, particularly on, a, on an important holiday like that. So you already kind of have set the stage for tough times in your life to go through these things, to, to achieve a goal that you, you have set for yourself and something you want so badly. And in, in that in, it, in itself is a lonely place to be that young and know what you want and be ready and willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Um, and, and if that means, you know, being separated from people you love, from being alone, from working from five o'clock in the morning till five o'clock at night, um, which was very much the case when I was under contract, Mr. DeMauro had a farm. I'd be in the barn at five o'clock in the morning and be finishing up at his farm at five o'clock in the evening. We, you know, after galloping horses in the morning, head out there and work all day. And it was fine because, you know, it was, it was a part of the journey to get to where you want to be, but it also is a very isolating kind of a lifestyle for a young person. You're not hanging out with friends after school. You're not going through the normal, you know, uh, aches and pains and, you know, puppy love and heartache. Uh, with people your own age that are going through the same experiences, you're, you're cast into an adult world um, and you don't have that normal uh, upbringing, that normal growing up stage. Um, so it, it, it already has kind of set the stage for you're going to be 
alone and cast into a place sometimes that's just difficult for anybody to handle, let alone a young person who is frankly very ill-equipped for it. Lafitte, look, there's so much there to unpack and and we're going to, we're going to dive in deep um, to all of these things. But at the top of the show, I I want Lafitte, why, why is this conversation? Because let's be honest and be frank. You, you sent Richie and I a message wanting to discuss this, wanting to dive deeper into this conversation Uh, for you, mental health, which is one part of this conversation. The other part of it is uh, the physical and mental obstacles for a jockey. Why is this conversation so important to you? You know, in the moment and learning of Avery Wisman, young rider, what he was battling. And while I did not know him, this hit so close to home, JK, uh, in regards to my own experience and upbringing. <clears throat> and I don't think it's discussed enough. Um, as Richie so eloquently put, the struggles of a rider. I watched a jockey struggle. As talented as my father was, you know, as much success as he had, like it all came with a steep price. Like hangry is real. All right. He was hangry for 40 years, like starving, literally 650 calories a day. The emotional toll for a rider, the pressure to win. You don't produce, you don't get paid. Like no guaranteed contracts, right? The danger that there's an ambulance out there chasing you around. There's no off season. Right. Like unless injured or suspended, you don't have a lot of time to like walk around and clear your head. And I think the bottom line is the life of a rider just isn't typically anywhere near as glamorous as often portrayed. And my mother, uh, who I lost when I was very young, uh, struggled with with mental health. Uh, My mother's side of the family. Generations of Severe, severe depression. Uh, My mom, aunt, grandmother, like all lost uh, far too young um, by their own hand. And uh, like the reason I'm sharing this and part of the reason we're having this conversation is to normalize these conversations. As you mentioned, it it doesn't have to be uncomfortable like it shouldn't be uncomfortable. You know, we've made strides in general, but like you said, the stigma surrounding mental health is still part of the problem by some still viewed, as you mentioned, as, as a weakness. Like it's not. How do you change that? I, I don't know. Not a mental health professional. <laughs> I'm a big believer in therapy, but I think maintaining an open dialogue, you know, especially these days, given the, the isolation and division needs to be a top priority. So we've gotten the opening statements, as it were, of, of, of kind of where we are and, and, and what it is we're going to be talking about for the next, you know, X amount of minutes or hours. I, I think that the, the one thing that I heard a couple of times and we talked about from the pre-show situation, which is I think is a great place to start because we do. This is a horse racing podcast. so We're going to start horse racing, but we're going to let it go wherever the hell it wants to go. Richie, for you. How much of a struggle we know about the physical struggle we heard on our on the podcast we did one-on-one all your broken bones and those are a part of the equation i think when it comes to mental health that 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 fear and and that 
knowing that, you know, you could lose your life and never hold your kids again at any, any time the gate opens, but tell us how hard the food part was for you and the weight part and, and, and feel free to go wherever you want to go with that. But tell us how, how impactful that was in your career. Well, it was, it was all consuming. You know, I'm a guy who was supposed to be 145 to 150 pounds naturally. Um, I'm 145 pounds now, and people tell me all the time, oh, you look like you can get right back in the saddle. I'm 30, over 30 pounds over my riding weight. So, <laughs> um, you, you know, you think about food constantly. Um, you don't realize if you are able to eat normally how much food is part of just socializing. You know, you go hang out with friends. What do you do? You eat. You, you, you go for a drink. You you know, food is a constant part of it and having to figure out uh, how to live with the fact that you got to look at food as fuel, not for enjoyment, not for flavor, not just to feed the engine. Right. And I didn't realize it at times how, again, hangry is, is the right word, Lafitte, how something would tie me in knots and I couldn't you know, I, I just would want to explode on people and, and the, you know, the chemical imbalance of not living on a proper calorie intake at the same time, trying to be strong enough to, to ride thousand pound animals and make clear headed decisions. And, um, you know, after the fact, when I was able to eat and relax a little bit, um, I real, like, I, I would go, wow, man, if someone said that to me while I was riding, it would have been a problem. Like I would have lost, you know, things that would bother me. I don't even know why they bothered me. And trying to find the balance later in my career, you know, of, of being a father and a husband, you, you, you work all day and living on with this unnatural, uh, you know, amount of, of, of calorie intake and then come home and you got to be dad. You can't just, you know, go and, you know, hole up in a room or, or get under the covers, you, you, you know, you, your son wants to have a catch, you know, your daughter wants you to teach her how to ride the bicycle, like, you know, trying to find that balance in there. And, and, and honestly, my children helped me get better mentally because when I was younger, I, I would either go back to my room at the track and hide, isolate, or go, uh, you know, the first apartment I had in Elmont, right, a mile, you know, half a mile from Belmont Park, a basement apartment, I'd go and hole up my basement apartment um, and want to try to go to sleep early so I wouldn't think about food or wouldn't eat. And it, it gets so crazy that it's even dehydrating yourself. It's not just not eating. It, it almost becomes a point where, right, I, I can live with being hungry. Try to live with being thirsty as well. And people say, well, you drink water. No, when you've gotten yourself down to a level of weight that is so below your natural weight, even drinking water is going to put weight on you. Your body's going to hold on to it. I could leave the jockey's room on a Sunday, 112 pounds. And if I let myself go a little bit, I was 118 on Wednesday morning. And now I got to get back down to 112. So that yo-yo, that, that chemical reaction that you're going to have is real. And your patience, your, your perception of things is so altered. Um, and then like, like if he talks about then the, the constant pressure of it, no season, no contract, don't win, don't get mounts. Uh, you, you know, it, it, it's a spiral. 
And in New York, at one point, there were four newspapers every day covering racing and giving a synopsis of the day's races. So I'd get up in the morning and I'd go to the coffee you know, shop at you know quarter to six in the morning. And if I got beat on a favorite the day before and somebody wrote in the New York Post about it, the guy at the coffee shop, hey, Mig, what happened there? Go pick up my racing form at the, uh, the, the, the newspaper store. Oh, hey, Mig, what happened in the third yesterday? You know, it, it, it's constant. You, you had this constant barrage of scrutiny. You were under a microscope. And even in that in itself is difficult to deal with. You, you can never hide from it. You can never just be free of a mistake you made publicly. It, it's between weight, number one, constant pressure, the, the wear and tear on your body, and the self-isolation because of all that. That's when your mental health really suffers because you do isolate. Nobody can understand you. That's the way you feel. Meg, I want to talk um, about the inner workings of that. Um, You know, what, you know, some of the stressors and and how you handled the weight and then also the the isolation. Um, It seems like a, like a sad place to be. Uh, I would imagine that there's some some solutions to that. Probably not good solutions, but solutions to kind of the, some of that hurt and pain. I want to come back to, but I do want to get Lafitte's take on some of the things you said. Uh, and and I think we'll just I don't need to do a whole thing. Hangry Lafitte, what, what did hangry mean to you? I think for for my father, you know, even if you're doing well and he's riding winners and, and, and much like the kind of success that Richie had during the course of his career, the, the you know, heights that my father reached, um, I just don't know that he, he'll be the first to tell you he didn't necessarily enjoy it. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're that deprived, you know, um, it has an extreme impact in general, on, on your mood, as Richie said, when it comes time to interact with the family when you when you go home. And then, you know, part of the fun for us guys, like after a big show, we get to spend some time together. We get to have a drink, hang out, celebrate, whatever it might be, maybe at the end of, of, of Saratoga. For a jockey, it's completely different. We just watched the Super Bowl the other day. And right after the game, it's like, you know, hey, Patrick Mahomes, you're the Super Bowl MVP. What are you going to do next? I'm going to Disneyland, right? In horse racing, like, hey, such and such, you just won the Kentucky Derby. What are you going to do next? I'm riding seven at Belmont tomorrow. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. completely, it's completely different. And I think what I think caught me off guard the most was something my, my father said to me a few years after he acclimated to the fact that he was retired. I've told Richie before, I don't know that I've met another rider who loved it. And I mean, actually loved it as much as my father, as Richie did. And what they were both willing to sacrifice. Richie wasn't meant to be a rider. Neither was my father. He jammed a square peg into a round hole. He forced it for decades. And what he said to me, because he went through a transition after he was forced to, he still wasn't ready. He was in his 50s. He was still riding well. He kind of had this resurgence late in his career. He had that spill. He broke his neck. He was very, very fortunate to walk away from a sport that 
he wasn't going to walk away from. You know, that was the irony. It took a broken neck to give him the opportunity to walk away. So after that, I think there was somewhat of an identity crisis. Um, it's not like he picked up the phone and said, hey, Lafitte, I'm, I'm, I'm depressed. You could just kind of tell. And he was trying to come to terms with who he was. Because from the time he was 15 years old, he was one thing. He was a rider. Like, first and foremost, now who am I? But then when that finally, that wound heals, and you look at, for him, life beyond the saddle, and I, I can go out. I don't have to count calories. You know, I don't have to measure everything. I can go out and have a drink and not feel guilty or not worry about how heavy I'm going to be the following day. We're out to dinner a few years ago, and he says, you know, if, if, if God came to me and said, Lafitte, I'm going to let you, you're going to be on this planet for eternity. In what stage of your life do you want to spend that time? He's like, I, 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 right now where I am right now. This was when he was still in his 60s, late 60s, right now. And I thought for sure, like, he's going to want to relive the glory days, right? He's like, he's never been happier now in retirement, which is what I'm more proud of that than anything he accomplished during the course of, of his career. Cause I know how much like, yes, he loved being a writer, but I don't think he was aware at the time at how much he was really just grinding and struggling until he got to live life like a normal flipping human being post-retirement. Richie, what, 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 what is, do you have anything to add to, to that? Just hearing Lafitte say that, I mean, uh, you know, cause I agree. Of, of, yeah. I've heard a lot of interviews. I've listened to lots of podcasts. I've talked to lots of writers. I'm friends with lots of writers. I don't know Lafitte's father as intimately as he just described, but there is no human on this earth that I know loved riding a horse more than you. And I'm very convinced of that. Well, listen, you thank you both for saying that. I did love it. I loved everything about it. I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and get to the track and get on a horse. I, I, I always had that 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 dreamers mentality that I could walk into the next Seattle slough, the, the, the next, you know, secretary, whoever, whoever it might be affirmed. Right. Um, and, and just that anticipation of that was a wonderful thing. You know, I, I wasn't, I was not lucky enough or fortunate enough in my life that a horse of that caliber walked into my life, but I enjoyed every part of it. I enjoyed the process of getting horses ready and being a part of the pit crew, you know, I always did better when I rode for a particular stable and I was a part of the team and, you know, they would listen to input. So I enjoyed that part of it, but something Lafitte was just saying about how, you know, Lafitte's dad was the all time winningest jockey on the planet and not enjoying it as much. And, and even though I loved being a rider and loved the riding, I never, got as much out of winning like the personal satisfaction i was never as happy winning as i was upset about losing um and it was so out of balance i mean i i actually did go to therapy and that's something you don't talk about because there's a macho factor of this you know guys in the locker room you're not going back to a locker room with guys that are on the same team as you that are trying to pick you up or make you better now you may have guys that are friends in there that's still your competitors and you can't allow that weakness. You can't allow them to know that, man, I'm struggling and I, I, I'm, I, I got to get help. Um, it, it, it's just not done. It's taboo in a locker room uh, setting like a jockey's room. 
there's a lot of macho attitude about it. Um, you know, I think that there was one point Eddie Maple recognized that I was struggling, that it, it, I'd be mercurial. If I won, you know, it was euphoria for an instant. If I lost, it was, you know, just depression for, for a week. And I was a guy who could ride a hundred to one shot in the Kentucky Derby. And by the time I got to the gate, I figured out 50 ways I can win this thing. And then ultimately when it didn't happen, I'd be depressed for a month. Um, I, I, I took it that hard, but I think Eddie Maple recognized it in me and, and him being an older rider and having children probably saw like, you know, this is somebody's kid and, you know, would try to talk to me about being more even. They call him steady Eddie for a reason, you know, not getting too high, not getting too low something I struggled with. The other thing too is why do you think there's, and it's gotten better, I believe over the years, but there's so much issues with, with uh, you know, dependencies, you know, drugs or alcohol with riders because you sacrifice so hard to do something that when you do have an opportunity occasionally to celebrate, you feel like there's a certain amount of, um, this is owed me. I, I, I'm supposed to be able to, let go now. Um, you know, I, I, I risk so much. I risk my life. I, I, I starve. I spend hours in the hot box. Uh, you know, I deal with people that, you know, sometimes aren't reasonable. You know, the horses don't run as well as they think, but who's, who's the most visible member of the team, the jockey. So he gets the blame. So there's an entitlement to it that you, so instead of being satisfied with having a drink or two, it turns into excess. I'm entitled this because I, put so much into this that, you know, I, I can, I can let go and do whatever I want and worry about paying the price later. I really think that has a lot to do with why so many riders over the years have had struggles with drugs and alcohol. Especially when you can't compensate with food, right? Yep. So you're going to compensate with something else, whether it's alcohol or stimulants or what, you know, prescription or whatever the case may be. And that leading to a certain dependency how do you think that game would have looked on Sunday if you told all 22 starters, you guys are all going to play with the, with the tank half full? We're going to allow you half the calories that you would normally consume before taking, play, taking part in a game as physically demanding as football. Or in this case, for these riders that are out there not being able to put themselves in the best position to maximize their own potential to feel best physically. And then after the fact, because you're constantly battling weight, what if you walk into the jock room, you're riding eight that day and you feel like hell you're tired, you're dragging, maybe you're over what, you know, you're going to take something to suppress your appetite and give you whatever energy is necessary to get through the day. Cause that's your job. And you're going to sacrifice and long-term, circling back to Richie, what he was saying as far as the dependency and substance abuse that, that you know, we, we've, this is in, in all walks of life, but just narrowing it down to jockeys in particular, it, when you connect the dots, it's, it's, it's not hard to understand. No, not, not at all. And, and you know, it, it's interesting the feat what you talked about with your dad and seeing him kind of make that transition and then finally get comfortable with, you know, his riding, the riding portion of his life being over. When I first was told I couldn't ride anymore, in that instant, I was still in the hospital. I had come out of a, you know, a, a really tough surgery. I didn't care at that moment. I actually remember thinking when the doctor was talking to me, like, I, I don't give a shit. It's done. It's done. I, I, I was in so much pain and banged up. And 
And then about six weeks later, I started feeling better and I was home and we had moved up to the farm and I started setting goals for myself. I'm going to walk to the mailbox and back. And the first week, I mean, there were a couple of days I had to call Carmela to come pick me up in the car. I couldn't get back up the hill to the house. Uh, then I'm going to walk down to the creek and back. And then I'm going to walk here and back. And, and I started feeling better. And I started believing, I, you know, uh, the doctors are wrong. I'm going to ride again. And I went to five different doctors to try to get an okay and, and couldn't get okayed. And I, I went into such a depression for a year. It was, it was as dark a place as... You know, I, I mean, the most elongated dark period of, of my life. I had maybe been to darker places, but this was every day felt like just a cloud. I'm not going to do that again. I'm never going to ride a race again. I'm never going to break out of the gate again. And part of that is your routine. You start so young that I lost structure. I knew what my day was going to be every day. Even if it was difficult making weight, I knew what I had to do every day. I, I was going to be at the track by six. I was going to be in the jockey's room by 10, 15. I was going to be there, ride all day until 5.30. I was going to go home and I was going to eat four ounces of fish and a salad. You know, like, I, I, and, and not having that structure, it, it's you lose something in that too. And the jockey's room, not, you know, you, you had that place to go. And for me, it was a sanctuary. I could have the worst argument with my wife. When I went through the threshold from the jockey's room, it was like a snake shed in one skin and another. She would get mad. I'd go and win three or four races after we had a big argument. And she's like, you didn't even think about it. No, I did not. As soon as I went through that threshold, I was in my, my, my safe place. I, I, nothing else was mattered or I thought about nothing else. So losing that routine is a huge part of it. And it just took me a really long time. And I had to start looking at it different. I can't say I'm never going to do that again. I'm not going to ride horses today. It's almost like how a recovering addict handles things. I can't look at it like it's never going to happen again. I'm just not going to ride today. All too familiar. All too familiar, Richie. And JK, my father had that spill, his last ride uh, under car to the Big Cat March of 2003. He didn't clear out his locker at Santa Anita until opening day of Del Mar. The following year, in 04, the thought of getting his locker out of there, cleaning it out, his foot locker, was too much. It was a year plus. He went opening day Delmar because he knew nobody would be there to get his stuff out. Um, and at the time of his accident and when they detected that he had multiple fractures in his neck, um, but that he was, I mean, thank, for all intents and purposes, he should have been in a wheelchair and there isn't a day I don't think about that and how fortunate he is that he's not, you know, running around like Benjamin Button out there, uh, reborn post post retirement. <laughs> um, but at one point he told me, he says, you know, if I didn't have a family and this, you know, Richie made me think about this when he mentioned this, JK, he said, if like, he's like, if it wasn't for you and your sister, if I didn't have a family and at the time he was in the process of getting a divorce, He's like, I'd go back, even though he was told the next time you go down, you could wind up in a wheelchair or the wrong kind of hit, the wrong kind of spill could kill you. Still, he's like, if I didn't have a family, I'd go back and ride without hesitation. And this is a guy who rode for 40 years in his mid-50s. There's, there's no question in my mind 
that if Richie didn't have Carmella and his three kids, he'd be riding still. 100%. Yeah, no, listen. I, he'd, I, he'd have blown right through that stop sign. <laughs> well, I said something the other day to somebody, and it, it sounds ridiculous. And, and I, I, it's like a yogiism. This is a migism. I said, you know, because I was told on the no in certain terms, you know, if, if you go down, you're going to, you know, because of all the hardware, you're going to break above or below the plates. And you will be a quadriplegic. And I, I said this, and I know it's going to sound ridiculous, but I hope you guys know in the vein it's coming from. I, I said to somebody, I said, you know, if I knew, like, I could go back to riding and, you know, if I had a spill, you know, normal injuries, break a leg, break an arm, you know, whatever. I said, or even get killed, I could live with that. I could live with dying. I, said. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but the, the, the point is, is that, the thought of being a burden and having people that I'm supposed to take care of have to take care of me um, is just unacceptable. And in, obviously intellectually, you know, it, it has to end someday. You got to let it go. Um, but in your heart, you feel like it, it, it could go on forever. And I'll tell you this, Lafitte, um, John Milano, my valet packed up all my stuff. I rode for uh, just short of 30 years, 29 years, missed 37 months from injuries. My trunks with all my equipment, my saddles, boots, pants, helmets are up in my hayloft. I've never opened them. That was wow. 2010. Those trunks have never been opened. I can't bring myself to open them. I, wow. All too familiar. I, I have a box from when I coached. I look through it all the time. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it, I think it's a different commitment. And, and I think that's the important part of like this conversation um, is, is the commitment. Richie, you, you touched on something when you were talking about therapy. Um, wh what pushed you there? Um, I would imagine the way you grew up uh, in Brooklyn on your own, basically, since you're 14, um, crying, you, you'd mentioned you'd cried yourself to sleep one night when you were 15 because you thought someone was breaking into your, you were, you were a child. I can only imagine Austin three years from now being in a, in a place by himself. Um, no. he, he just wouldn't be able to handle it. What, what you're obviously a tough person, you're mentally tough, physically tough, the shit you endured throughout your career. What pushed you to therapy? What, what made you, and, and at what point of your career did you make that decision to, to see, uh, to see someone to talk about it? Um, I have to give all the credit to my wife, Carmela. Um, and, and blessing uh, would not be the person I am or maybe even be here if it wasn't for her. Um, we became very close friends early on. I married her when I was 21 years old. Um, and she recognized, you know, that I was struggling even more than normal. And it kind of came to a head one day when um, I had won four uh, that day and got beat a nose in the last race. And, and did not ride a good race, should have won. And in my mind, I'm exposed. I'm not a good rider. I was fooling everybody all day. That race defined me. And when I got home, I was in a foul mood. And she was like, but you won four and you won the stake. I think it was the Better Roses. Or... And I was like, yeah, but did you see the last race? I said, you know, everybody saw I'm not a good rider. I'm not, you know, and, and I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. And she came down to, to the living room at three o'clock in the morning and I'm watching race tapes and, and just going back over it and back over. It. And, and she urged me 
to start seeing somebody and, and talk about a lot of unresolved issues, a lot of things that I carried with me from childhood and, you know, how it impacted my confidence and the fact that I would think that, and this is obviously stuff that I learned more about myself and dug into in therapy was why I would think one race would define me, why that I would always look that the, the negative or something that went wrong was you see that that's who I am. That's not that people would outly maybe see somebody successful, somebody that, wow, you know, lead rider, whatever. Um, and, and I wasn't satisfied with that. I was always finding the negative. I was always finding why I wasn't worthy of something, why I wasn't good enough for something. And so that, that was a huge blessing there. And, it, you know, I, I hope you guys don't mind. I'm going to go off in a, a little bit of a different direction along the same vein, though. Um, after I lost the bug, I was really doing bad. I was in a bad slump. I had uh, bought my way out of my contract. I just things weren't going well. And I had one filly that I was working that could really run. And it was like really counting on her to kind of help get me going again. And I was galloping her every morning for a particular trainer and the trainer told me she was ready to run we're going to enter the filly but you have to go to the meadowlands on saturday night and ride this other horse for him and i said no but i can't because i have to go i mean my brother's wedding party i my brother's get my oldest brother was getting married and the guy told me if i didn't go ride that horse i couldn't ride the filly that i was galloping every day so i went to my brother's wedding it was a night racing at Meadowlands. It was the last race. I didn't eat. I didn't drink. I stayed for part of the reception. I left and drove to the Meadowlands in the pouring rain to ride a $5,000 claimer. Horse ran up the track. Guy told me, okay, you've got to blow the filly out in the morning. I was at his barn 6 o'clock the next morning, blew her out. He made the entry. He didn't put me on the horse. And she won by eight. <laughs> And I was in my basement apartment in Elmont. I walked home. I was packing. I was done. I can't believe people could treat you like this. And I literally was packing and I was going to go off and live in the mountains. I didn't want, I was going to be a hermit. <laughs> and about seven o'clock that night, there's a knock on my door and it's my girlfriend, Carmela, who's my wife now. She knew what had transpired and started talking. I cried. I, we talked. I, we were up all night. And at five o'clock in the morning, I was either going to put my boots on and go to the track and go to work, or I was going to quit. Well, I put my boots on and went to work. And I, I attribute the strength that she gave me and staying with me and talking me through it. And, you know, for me carrying on, because I was done. And that trainer, it was like I had Tourette's. Every time I saw that guy, like I'd pass him on the horse path, I would just go off and call him every name in the book. <laughs> and... Years and years later, I'm fighting for lean rider. My agent came to me and said, hey, this guy wants us to ride some horses. He's got some live horses. And I was like, he could bring Secretariat back from the dead. I won't <laughs> ride for the guy. Ultimately, I wound up riding, and I, but I told him we were ground rules. I'll ride the four horses for him, but he can't say anything to me. I don't want to hear. No instructions. Don't say hello. Nothing. I went to the paddock. <laughs> he started talking to me. I said, you're going to need a rider in a second. And I won on all four horses. I was lead rider. Never rode for him again. Oh <laughs> but if it wasn't for Carmela, then I, I, I might not have ridden anymore. I really was because you can't believe that someone could do that to you, that you sacrifice so hard. You went go to your brother's wedding 
and don't eat, don't drink, and leave early to go ride a horse? I, I mean, I, I think that speaks to just where your mindset is, how bad you want it. But also, you know, that that, is, that isn't always going to be repaid in kind. That it, hard work doesn't necessarily get you where you need to be. You know, people have to, to give you an opportunity. And, and, and I talk to young riders all the time. You don't know when an opportunity is going to come. The only thing you can do is be prepared for it when it does and make the most of it. And, and, and understand that people are going to disappoint you. You can't control other people's actions. But again, you're young, you're ill-equipped for it, and you're blinded by your own passion and, 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 and the goals you've set. Richie, let's bring this back a little bit um, to, to, the, to, the, to the, the, the event that kind of got us in this direction of this conversation. When it, when it comes to someone like Avery, who was riding kind of the, the smaller circuits, that he was not riding it, you know, he wasn't, you know, riding for Baffert in grade ones in Santa Anita. He wasn't uh, on horses for Todd at, at Gulfstream. And he certainly wasn't on horses for, for, for the, you know, Chad's and Linda's of the world in, in New York. You, you spent the majority of your career riding in New York, um, mm-hmm. where if you were to have success, you would be rewarded for that success financially and, and, and also just like socially. Tell the listeners the difference between the struggles that you went through at the highest level versus the struggles that a lot of these guys and gals go through um, at those tracks that we even have punchlines about <laughs> Charlestown on a Wednesday night. What a sicko betting that talk about those lower level uh, riders and, 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 and how much worse their situation is than what you went through considering the stage you were on. Uh, it, it, it's infinitely harder for, for guys, you know, men and women riding on, you know, lower level racetracks. You're not riding, the cream of the crop you're riding horses that often have physical infirmities uh certainly a lot of them you know mentally i talk about horses mentally and physically mentally just aren't as as easy to handle they're not um you know the, the cadillacs if you will um and they're not riding for headlines they're not riding for fame and fortune they're riding to put food on the table they're they're, they're riding to support a family to to pay rent to to you know make their car payment um which is one thing when you have success on an upper echelon circuit, that's going to come. I I never rode for money. I never set out to be a jockey because I I can make money or have a car. It was, it was a a, a true passion, but one of the trimmings, the accoutrements to that is that you are well rewarded. Uh, So it's a completely different kind of pressure when, if you don't win races, uh, you're not going to be able to buy your kids school clothes or you're not going to be able to pay the mortgage. I mean, uh, I, I don't know what it's like to ride with that hanging over your head, but I have so much admiration for riders that are doing it again to make ends meet. It, it's a living. It's not, um, you know, what I experienced as far as, being in New York, the majority of my career. Well, see, you, you know, your father obviously always rode at, at, at a pretty high level when it comes to, you know, I think there's a couple of things. I think there's a couple of ways people can cope with some of the stuff that, that Richie mentioned. 
when it comes to the stresses of weight, the, the, the pressures of winning, um, the obstacles of the probably less than um, dependable type of people you have to deal with sometimes in racing from a loyalty standpoint. Um, how did your dad, is this, as much as you feel comfortable sharing, how did he kind of cope with it? Was therapy ever a thing for him? Was it, was it, was it substance? Was it, you know, and, and also Richie be thinking about this too. I, I, I you know, we've talked, I, I don't know if really you had a lot of issues with substance, but, but Lafitte, how did your dad handle, you know, a lot of these stresses? He would fall into that like therapy way too macho for any of that. <laughs> I think he'd be the first to tell you. And certainly earlier on in his career when he was younger and we lived in a completely different time when mental health was not discussed, when therapy, uh, going to see a psychologist is, is, it was just associated with being, you know, completely nuts. And fortunately we've come a long way since then. Um, he tended to, he was quiet. He would keep everything kind of to himself. Um, early on in his career, I think there was a lot of experimenting with uh, different, whether it was supplements or stimulants. The key for him was how can I feel my best, most energetic, strongest in the saddle, while not being able to fuel myself properly with food. And through a lot of trial and error, uh, he, in, his, in, his, in his book, you know, he talks about his temper when he was in his 20s. Um, and a lot of that having to do with stimulants he was taking at the time, experimenting with, and then maybe going out and, and at that time maybe having a drink and what that would result in, this, this fiery temper that he had where he would it would take very little for him to, to to snap and at some point to his credit recognizing i can't live like this like i'm good like i this is not sustainable long term and I, i'm you know couldn't be prouder of the fact that he figured out a way to maintain his career for decades and doing it properly having recognized, you know, it would have been very easy for him to become completely dependent on one substance or another. So it's not like he's, you know, always made the right decision and stayed away. Like it was trial and error. This doesn't work for me. I don't like who I am. I don't like how I feel the following day. I'm hurting people close to me. Um, and it's having an impact on, he's, he was, as much as he was winning, he was, he was a man. He was, he wasn't, wasn't a happy individual and later on matured, started making better choices and figuring it out. But you could, again, it's, it's very, doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand why so many specifically in this profession will fall into that hole, you know, never really to be seen again, as far as, as recovery and figuring out the right way to go about things. You know, and, you know, before I get to you, Richie, on that, uh, you know, I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about just my feelings in that ar arena, right? My, my dad did not have nearly the stressful job that your father had, Lafitte, and, and Richie, the job that you had throughout your life. But he did have a stressful job. He was a car salesman, and uh, he was a very successful car salesman. He did really well. I, I never really needed for anything, and, you know, that, 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 uh, 
that Friday morning, Hey dad, can you send me 1500? I'm at school message always was answered with a yes. Um, but I do think that when there is a stressor as a career, when you get out of the situation in which is stressing you, which is my dad coming home from work or, or, you know, or, or Richie, you, you, you know, you getting home from the track and Lafitte, your father getting home from the track, there was always a, something to turn to, to kind of release. And, and Richie said something that I never really thought about. It's like, you feel like you earned it and shit. I mean, you probably did in, in fairness, it, it might not have been the best thing for you to do, but if someone earned the right to have a drink or two or six, it's probably the person who did, the career of a rider and, and probably someone who is a commission-based worker. Um, but I realize now that my dad's gone, that he was numbing something. He was numbing, whether it was the stress that he wanted to numb. Um, you know how it is when you're stressed out about something, you have a couple of drinks, suddenly you're not thinking about that thing anymore. So you get mm -hmm. that kind of break of having to think about it. And I would imagine as a rider, whether you went on a, you know, you lost a couple of races or you're hungry as shit, having three drinks suddenly that that kind of goes away for a second and uh and, and so you know it, it makes sense why substance is such an issue and, and and so many top riders we know of ha have struggled with that and and richie is, is as close as we are and we've had conversations i just I, I didn't we never really talked so much about if that was a huge part of of your career if you if you found yourself uh, with that being a huge obstacle? Well, alcohol, yes. Um, I, and drugs, never. I, I was, I, I'll be honest, I was always afraid of it. Um, I, I remember being at a party and, and somebody, you know, had cocaine and, you know, guys were, and I, I left because it just, it, that always scared me. I, I, I had never any desire for it. But alcohol was, was the thing. And, and I remember the first time that I, I started recognizing it as a kid, we were at Hialeah for the winter. Again, I, I hadn't even turned 15 yet. And Walter Kelly's horse won the Widener handicap. And, you know, we were in the same barn. We shared a barn with them and they had a big party. And, and it, it was something that I, I remember that dawned on me that night that, wow, when you win, everybody's happy and they celebrate and they, you know, who had beers and this and that. And, and then, seeing guys when a horse lost that they don't really like or something drowning their sorrow so it's it's a little bit of that culture right like you, you, you win you celebrate you lose you drown your sorrows um and i went through stages with it you know there were a couple times in my career as a rider that um i, I would drink too much um and i was numbing pain uh obviously the the evidence stuff the stuff of uh, the pressure of the job and starving and the entitlement. And then, you know, why was I never content with four victories and getting me, you know, on one and that was the one that defined me? Well, you know, the way I grew up, I, I spent a lot of time hiding. You know, my father could be volatile. Um, the area I grew up in, I, I mean, I would hide in the stairwell, the apartment building. Uh, just to not get a beaten, whether it was from inside my house or outside my house. So you you tend to self-medicate and, and try to relieve yourself of the, these these feelings. And, you know, leaving home so young, you know, why did I leave home? So I couldn't wait to get the hell out of there, right? So you, you carry a lot with you. 
and again, the, the, the macho part of this is just bury it, bury it, bury it until I couldn't bury it anymore. And there were periods in my career I wouldn't drink for years on end. I mean, I went probably four or five years and never had a drink. And then I got to a point where, well, I could sometimes and not others. I, I, it was a winding road for me. Uh, I, I, I Sometimes it was no good and sometimes it was okay. And sometimes I just couldn't do it. Um, I drink now, but it's different. It's not like I'm trying to get to a place um, and, and feel better about something. I, I, I like to, you know, have a good meal and, and drink good wine. And, and, but it's not to take me to a destination or to run away from something. It, it, it's a completely different thing now than it was at periods of my career. Drugs never, but alcohol has been an issue. Richie, as far as drugs, um, and, and obviously there's no reason to, to, to do any names or anything like that, but is your time as a writer, you know, just, I think the audience probably wants to know just in a general statement, you know, I think it's a different game now. I think the room now is different than it was back then. And I could be wrong about that. You know, you got guys like Irad and Jose that like, I think I've, I think I saw Jose with a Corona one time on the boat. Like, I don't think he drinks at all. I don't think Irad drinks at all. You know, I, I think that they're, they go home and they play video games and hang out with their family. Right. But I think yeah. back in the day, there was probably a little bit more of a kind of a bad boy uh, party guy vibe in the 90s, the 80s. Just kind of drugs in the room, not in the room, but just drugs from riders in general. If we're talking about mental health and addiction and obviously the, the, the Chris Antleys of the world, like you can't skip over it like it doesn't exist. What were some of your observations as it came to drugs, was it was it cocaine? Was it was it? Uh, what what did you kind of see throughout your years? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I, I tend to keep very much to myself, um, but the drug that was prevalent was cocaine um, amongst the guys that had issues with it, and obviously Chris being one of them. And the difference, and I think the room is extremely different now than it was then. Um, and it's not nearly as prevalent. Um, nobody, nobody would talk about it. You knew a guy wasn't right and you'd still be riding with him. And really what should have been going on was, Hey, wait, that guy, I don't want to be out there with him. And I got busted up bad because Chris dropped himself. The first time I broke my neck, Chris fell in front of me. Uh, you know, he walked away and I was on the sidelines for seven months. Right. So, but you still wouldn't say, hey, that guy was messed up. There was almost like an unwritten code that no one was going to you know, rat on somebody else. And even though it might have been best for them, if you had, um, as well as the people around, it's a dangerous job made even more dangerous. So, uh, but, but cocaine was definitely the, the, the drug that seemed to be the most prevalent because, again, if you're reducing and you're pulling weight and you're, you're, you know, you're not eating properly, well, isn't that a performance enhancing drug? Isn't that something that's going to give you a little more energy, make you a bit stronger in the finish? I mean, I would assume that's why guys gravitated to, towards that. Again, like I said, I was always afraid of it. I never, never messed with that. Uh, Lafitte, I, I want to talk a little bit more just about mental health in general, but, but as we're, you know, as we're on this rider conversation, um, when it comes to the weight thing, which I, which look, there's lots of pulls uh, in lots of different directions when it comes to the riders 
and, and their mental health and, and what they were going through. But one of the things I've always just thought about is just like, it's, it's not even so much. I, I think the maintaining of the weight is always was, it was always a hard thing. And Richie will let you talk about this too, but it's like, when you're in that situation, when you show up and you're four pounds over, like getting to that appropriate weight when it's time, I, 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 I've seen riders jogging around the turf course at Saratoga with trash bags on at 9:45 on a Saturday. And I think to myself like, shit, that doesn't seem like an optimal way to get ready for the races. Well, and, and you know what else is going on underneath those trash bags? You're wrapped in saran wrap after you've rubbed your body with salt and abilene oil. So the salt helps draw more fluid out of your body. So, you know, uh, or you're in the hot box skipping rope in 160 degree heat. Um, again, rubbed with salt and abilene oil. You know, the difference too now, like you talk about the culture's changed and a lot and, and thankfully so. You'd walk in the jocks room your first day. And this was how they did the guided tour. All right, here's the, the, the hot box. This is the dry room. You come in here to break out. You go back in the steam to do this. If you can't get all your weight off in the, in the hot box, go to the masseur. He'll wrap you in a, a rubber sheet and put the heat lamp on you after he rubs you with salt. There's, uh, this guy can get you uh, diet pills. Oh, if, if you have to eat, um, this is the flip install. So when you're done eating, you can go in here and throw up. I mean, th- that was your guided tour. Oh, that guy can get your water pills. If you need Lasix, he'll get, you know, and most jockeys room have, have taken the flipping bowls out. Um, the uh, time spent in the hot box is a lot more monitored. Um, so I, I think they've definitely tried to promote a healthier approach to this, which wasn't the case, at least when I started the early eighties, but, um, and again, listen, you know, people hear this and say, well, you know, they, they had a choice. They wanted to do it. Yeah. 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 Yes. And no, you know, riders start like thinking about it so young that you haven't formed enough of a, a, a mature approach or, or mind to, to kind of weigh out, like, what is this going to do to me long-term? How is it going to affect me, you know, health-wise? Um, and, and it's almost like the, the career finds you a little bit. And someone once told me this, and, and this is a good general statement, that most top jockeys and, t- and top boxers don't come from affluent families. You know, and, and here's an opportunity, and particularly for a smaller than average, you know, man to elevate himself, to get to a better place, to, to be able to to make a living and get out of, you know, uh, a neighborhood or a a country uh, that's impoverished. You know, so one of the things I want to do, and and we we spent a lot of time on it and we'll obviously probably come back to it a lot. Um, But one of the things that we, we all kind of discussed we wanted to do here was, you know, this is a racing podcast. We wanted to focus on the impacts of mental health in racing specifically as it pertains to the riders who, who in my opinion have um, the heaviest lift when it comes to mental health with the things they have to deal with more than trainers, more than billionaire owners, um, broke owners too, and gamblers. So um, 
you know, I just want to kind of start and and, and I'll turn to you, Lafitte. I just want to start with like, look, mental health is a thing that's always been on my mind. Uh, you know, like I said, my father was an alcoholic, which, you know, to me is a, is a version of that and uh, mental health. And, and like I said, he was always kind of running from something. And, and ultimately, you know, I don't think I've ever, I mean, I've never obviously said anything like this before on the air, but like, ultimately, like my father, um, he, he had got it, you know, he had gotten himself so far into a hole with alcoholism that um, we, we, we had to basically kind of put him in the hospital. And when he was in the hospital, he contracted COVID and his doctors and we all believe that that COVID, you know, because we know it's a circulatory situation, led to him having a stroke, which ultimately took his life. Um, but, you know, it's like I, I thought to myself thinking about this podcast and thinking about it in general, like if it wasn't for the fact that alcohol stayed a part of his life, if he would have found a way to numb the str- to numb the stresses or handle the stresses of of being a commission based uh, provider or a if he would have, you know, found a way to, to, to figure out some of his family stuff or his failed marriage stuff or some of the things he felt like were his shortcomings. If he would have found a way to kind of take that edge off, to numb it differently, which is exactly what I think he was doing. Like, I don't okay, he wasn't a, he, he wasn't like a get wasted guy. You can't figure out. He just used to kind of like numb his shit. And he never, ever thought about therapy. He never, uh, we just never, you know, even like when we say it in passing, he just was never interested in that, never interested in any kind of like rehab situation or, or going to meetings to talk about it. And I think that's a lot has to do with him being a man. I think it has to do with him being, you know, mm-hmm. from his generation um, of not wanting to get help. And, um, it's something that I've always encouraged my friends and family to do. Get help. Talk to somebody. I, it's one of my favorite things to do is talk to my therapist. Like, and I don't, sometimes I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Like, I just like, I'll just make him list, listen to me for an hour. And I'm like, are you still there? <laughs> it, 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 it's just having someone non-judgmental listen to you talk about your problems in a clean way. It, it's, it's something that, that has had a huge impact on my life. Um, Lafitte, I know it has for you as well. I, I'm a big believer, big believer in therapy. Um, I also feel very fortunate. I had an opportunity to spend some time with, with you and your father, not long after you and I really met and became friends, but just to, to, to hang out with him one evening in, in hot springs after I think we covered the, the Southwest, uh, together, um, is as far as is therapy i don't like i don't think the answer to everyone's problem is like on a stranger's couch i don't think the answer to everyone's issues is in a is in a prescription bottle but i know for me personally it's made a massive difference and i've been in different stages of my life and the reason being obviously when i lost my mom as young as i was um, you know, everyone close to our family had told my father, you know, uh, Lafitte and his sister, Lisa have to, they, they, they need to, they need to talk about this and kids express emotion through There's a lot of drawing. Um, I visited my therapist from when I was nine, 10, 11 years old 
when I was in my later teenage years and, and looking at the pictures and things that I drew, I was like, man, I was pretty messed up. <laughs> Thank God I was in therapy from, from that point forward as a, as a child, as opposed to bottling all that stuff up. Not that you necessarily are ever going to heal completely from experiencing something so traumatic, but from a very early age, I saw the positives in therapy. And I think in having this conversation, you have to be careful. Those that have been in therapy sometimes come off as though they think they're therapists, <laughs> right? Um, and a little bit preachy. And, and I don't think that's what we want to do here. We're not medical professionals. We don't have the education in terms to like pretend we're therapists. Um, but what I have learned, experienced, and, and really healthy coping mechanisms. A big part of this conversation has been coping me mechanisms. Some of them, not so good for you. Lead you down a rabbit hole. We've discuss discussed substance abuse, addiction. This is much more of a, a positive way to engage what your problems might be and continuing to discuss them and trying to pull at that thread to remove that stigma of mental health. That, that still, even though, again, we've made those strides, but, but still when you're, you're, you know, your buddy calls you and, hey, how you doing, man? Well, I tested positive for COVID a couple of days ago. I have a flu, I have a cold. There's no shame in that. But your buddy calls you and like, hey, where you been? I haven't heard from you. I've been having panic attacks, man. Or I've been, you know, I've, you know, I, I've just been depressed as hell and that's why I haven't been in work the last week or so, that isn't as comfortable of a conversation to have. And that goes back to the association with some sort of a weakness stigma, which is why this is still not in a dark corner, never to be, you know, referenced, but we're still in the pro like we're not, we're definitely not there yet. And to continue the narrative, to maintain this conversation, to have it in public is important. Something tragic happens, much like we just experienced with Avery Wisman. The news cycle moves so quickly, it's like you address it and in the, the page the page is turned. That's just where we are as as a society in, in general, unfortunately. Um, but if nothing else moving forward, if anyone listening who's dealing with some of these things, who's a little bit embarrassed to discuss it for whatever reasons, understanding that there are so many people out there who deal with the same issues, the anxiety, the depression, so on and so forth, um, there's safety in numbers. And it makes it feel that much safer when the conversation is a little bit more in the forefront than it than it generally is. Richie, there's a zero percent chance that anyone listening <laughs> has a. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I mean, there's obviously someone, but you grew up tough in ter in terms of uh, you know you'd mentioned on 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 your dad being volatile. Uh, we've had intimate conversations about your relationship with your family. You leaving at such a young age, at 14. I mean, dude, 14 is young. To, uh, when I was 14 years old, I'm thinking about what I was doing. I was like 
trying to make out with some girl behind Chili's. You know what I'm saying? Like it, 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 that's a, that's 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 young. And the fact that you were just kind of thrust into this adult world when you were that young, uh, and then you know you'd already kind of talked about. So let me let me back up. You you thrust into this adult world. You were forced to be tougher than the average bear. So when I say that, I'd be shocked if someone listening here was tougher than you when they were 15, 16 years old. And I, and I say that loosely, I know people go through their own things, but my, my point of bringing that up is, and you had mentioned that Carmela kind of was the one who, who pushed you, that gave you the courage to go and, and to talk to someone. Were you resistant? Um, were you resistant? And, 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 and as someone who was so tough, how was that first experience for you to kind of, you know, kind of maybe someone who's listening, who has their guard up about that, um, who, who thinks they're too tough or too macho to do this. Could you tell us about your experience, about what it was like that first time that you, you went and talked to someone? Oh, I, I was, I was very resistant. I, I you know, I, I think I was insulted, you know, like I, I can, I can handle my own stuff. I don't need, uh, you know, someone else to help sort me out, you know, and I, and it, it took coaxing and conversation. And then I said, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And, I'll be honest with you, the first probably month uh, of, of going, I I was BSing. I, I wasn't going anywhere near the stuff that was making me unhappy or uh, uncomfortable with myself. I wasn't going there. I was I was totally BSing uh, or thinking I was BSing the therapist. And, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, normal stuff that everybody goes through and uh, and I can remember when I realized that I'm not BSing this person at all. And they're just like methodically trying to draw me out. And when I started really talking, really letting the things that I had buried so deep for so long start to come out, it was hard. But I remember feeling so much relief that first time that I was actually real when I actually started talking, when I actually started to be truthful. Um, and it was, it was, it was draining. I was exhausted. I was, it was emotional, but I also felt relief and, and that feeling of relief outweighed any of that uncomfortable discomfort, I should say, of, of sharing things that I, I would never share um, with anybody about anything. Um, so uh, it, but it took a while, a little while to get there. And then obviously over time. So, so, you know, for me, I, I just think you have to be honest, um, with yourself and honest enough that you, you really talk, you really say what needs to be said, what, what, what's going on inside of you, what you feel. And, and it's difficult. It's difficult. Um, you know, certainly for people to, ask for help and say it, but maybe uh, conversations like this, uh, unfortunately, because of situations like Avery, if we get enough people like Lafitte said, talking about it, and you know what, quietly reaching out to people that you f see struggling, not, not forcing yourself on them, just letting them know that you're there, that you care, that, um, you know, hey, I, I've been to some dark places i've been to some tough places and you're not 
alone in whatever you're feeling. And if you ever you know, need to talk, I'm, I'm here or you need some advice or just people like to know other people care. Um, and maybe sometimes sharing that you've had struggles will make them comfortable enough to say, yeah, you know what? I am struggling. I, 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 I you know, we'll go back a little further. Michael Bay's uh, rode with him at Hollywood park. He was riding great. And I could see how hard he was struggling with so many things. And I would try to talk to him. We'd walk out of the jocks room at Hollywood park to the parking lot and, you know, just talking to him like he was a little brother or something. And, and, just never could quite reach him, you know, and then, you know, a year and a half later, he's gone. Um, I, I, it's evident when people are struggling. And even though like you're in a locker room setting in our particular case, you got to try, you got to let people know that you're there and that, and that, that you do care, genuinely care, you know, not, and you're not trying to exploit that they're, uh, you know, oh, they're weak and, and, you know, or, or have an issue, not that they're weak, but they, they're, they're struggling with something. Um, but that's the way it's perceived in a locker room anyway. So uh, I, I know Eddie Maple was a gift like that for me in some, you know, spots. And I, I and I tried to reach Michael a few times. I just wasn't able to, but um, I, I think that's a big step in, in, yes, it's out in the open, but it's certainly not in the, in the, in the sunlight. There's a lot there, Richie. And I'm so glad you brought it up going back to first and foremost, just being honest. We lie to ourselves even in therapy, you lie to your therapist or you shield them from how dark things really might be. If you're a people pleaser, you want to tell them what they want to hear. You want to tell yourself what you want to hear, your loved ones, and you and you get really good at concealing these things. And therapy is completely pointless. Talking about you, it's completely pointless unless you're honest. And once you recognize that you get to a point that, okay, I like, I, I'm depressed or this anxiety is killing me or whatever it might be coming to terms with that, with yourself first, and then having a strong enough support group, those around you, your family, your friends, a therapist to being completely honest with them. It's not like, it's not going to work. You're wasting your time. It's not going to work yeah. otherwise. And reaching out, just checking in on the people around you. You're right, Richie. Sometimes it's really obvious when people are struggling, and you feel hesitant because you don't want to, you don't want to cross, you don't want to cross a line, and maybe it make things worse potentially. Um, sometimes you can't tell. You know, sometimes everything looks just fine on the surface. So take the time, check in with your friends, check in with your family, just make sure everybody's good. Like just because. You know, it doesn't say I suffer from depression or anxiety and somebody's freaking Twitter bio like doesn't mean everything's OK or as it appears on the surface. No, I mean, I, I completely agree. And it's like, you know, uh, you, you got to think. Right. And, and this is and I hope this person's not like listening to this in like in a weird way. But like, you know, you got to think that someone had some interaction with Avery and we're like, man, my man's not doing that well. You know, he's, he seems like he's kind of going through it. And, uh, you know, I, I have a friend who, uh, look, I'm just going to be honest. I have a friend who, um, I was very close to, but then, you know, he just kind of had some like ups and downs, some kind of hiccups and like this conversation inspired me to reach out to them today. Like, like I, I just wanted to, you know, yeah. we, 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 you know, like we had like in the last time we talked, 
it was like kind of a beefy talk. Like, well, I don't know, dude, you did it. Well, all right, well, cool. I mean, whatever, like, you know, like we're cool, but we're not as cool as we were and we'll move on. <laughs> that was how the conversation kind of ended. And uh, he's just going through something, man, like someone very close to him. He lost someone very close to him. And then, um, and, and he's kind of struggled and, and with mental health in general. And like today, I just felt like I needed to like, just say something. And I was just like, yo, you good? And it came back with a lot more emotion than I was expecting because he was going through it. And, and you can sense that with people that are in your lives that they are going through it. And I think a lot of times, like, you know, like you said, Luffy, you don't want to, you don't want to seem like you're sweating somebody like, you're, you know, uh, Hey man, you good. You know, it's like, it's almost like it's insulting to ask someone if they're good. Yeah. But you just never really know like when they needed, like, you know, when they needed that kind of that little push. Hey, they man, they might not even realize they're good. What we're doing right here, even if nobody's listening between the three of us, this is therapeutic. Just blowing it all out, acknowledging these things that they exist, that you've you're dealing with certain struggles. We all do. We all get so wrapped up in our own bullshit. It's really easy to kind of lose the touch. And especially with those around you and this is why acknowledging and just having a simple, honest discussion can go so far in terms of maybe an hour, an hour and a half, whatever it is. Like when you, when, if I'm done in a therapy session or when you finish up JK and you, you know, like I thought I like, I, whatever was bothering me before bothers me a little bit less now than it did then. And that even if it's, it's a half a step is progress in the right direction. But, but Lafitte, you just said something that, that is the, the crux of it. Being able to see outside yourself, um, be outside yourself, be aware of the, the, the people around you, whether you're very close with them or you're not. But, but having that ability to be aware of that and just make yourself available. I mean, we all have to do that for e- each other, whether you're good friends with somebody or an acquaintance with somebody. I, it, it means a lot just that people know that they're thought of, that someone cares. Uh, and, and it doesn't have to be in an intrusive way. It doesn't have to be you know, forced upon. Just say, hey, man, how's it going? Are you good? And if a conversation could go someplace that someone goes, man, you know, at least someone else has, is aware or, or just cares, just caring. Yeah, it goes I mean, a long way, just like consciously or even subconsciously that just that knowing even one person fight, whatever, it goes a long way and, and makes a difference knowing that somebody cares enough to just check in. Yeah. And the other thing about it, too, like a sneaky kind of like, you know, <laughs> sneaky handicapping tip here on, on JK plus one. If you I've always felt that like one of the best ways that you can encourage your friends and family and people around you to share with you is like if you share with them, like, you know, so like if like if you have a friend you're worried about, like you might have to like like sweat them like, hey, man, what's going on? You good? You know, but like sometimes just like reaching out to them and sharing, giving them an intimate moment like, yo, man, like I'm just like kind of going through this thing or like, I, you know, I got man, like you know, this time of year is always tough for me because of my dad and whatever it is. Like sometimes you sharing with them can kind of open the door for them to then feel comfortable sharing with you. Sometimes they feel like they owe you. Like, oh shit, man. Like I gotta, I guess I gotta say something now. Like, you know, 
Um, but that's the thing. Like, I, I don't, you know, it's funny and I'm, I'm, I'm very, I feel it's, it's probably different. I would say for Richie and, um, because you know, his generation's just, you know, like, like, you know, his son and I aren't that far off in age. Right. So it's like, are you saying I'm old? Richie, I, didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. I didn't say that at all. I'm just saying like you're me. I'm just saying you're older than I am. You too, Lafitte, even, <laughs> even though you have that, that, uh, that beautiful skin and you're always so well-dressed. Um, I, I feel fortunate that I was like, I'm in a generation where it's like, it's, it's, it's like a lot easier and cooler to like share your feelings and to like, be like, yo, I, I'm feeling a certain way. I, I, I feel very grateful for that. So it's not, and I'm like an overshare. You asked like, Jovanina like wants to fight me half the time because I'm like, hey babe, you want to talk about this? <laughs> like, I'm an, I'm I'm definitely an over I'm an overshare, and I think that probably has to do with my mom taking me to therapy when I was like nine when they got divorced. But like, you know, it's still like even my generation, it's it's not, it's still just like it's weird. Like people just don't want to, you know, they'll tell you all about how they got this, you know. I got this, like, you know, I got this, I got this growth on my foot, but they don't want to tell you they're sad about something. There's something something very, um, I guess, healthy and empowering to feel comfortable enough to share vulnerability. When you're in a good place with you, this conversation is a lot easier. Like, yeah, I've been... I don't know why, but I, like I've been depressed for a couple of weeks or man, my anxiety has been making it really difficult to sleep. And then I kind of spiral in X, Y, and Z. The better of a place you are with you, it's much like, and guys, we've had this conversation about the impact of, of social media, for example, and that everyone with a flipping account, every Yahoo has access to everyone, whether you're talking about the jockeys in the room or celebrities or athletes, artists, whomever it is. The guy that makes costs the linebacker for the Cincinnati Bengals who had that late hit and penalty that might have cost the Bengals a trip to the Super Bowl. You don't think at some point as he's sobbing on the sideline and now he's injured as well and the season's over, he's not thinking about going back to his locker and having to look at that phone and read 10,000 tweets from these guys telling him what he did wrong as if he doesn't already, as if he doesn't already know it. Um, That makes it that much more difficult um i'm glad richie i'm glad my father didn't have to ride in the age of social media that i don't think that would have gone very well for either for either of them everyone having um that that access but again if some when somebody criticizes you when somebody has something negative to say about whatever it was something where, where you're insulted whether it's on social media whether it's from somebody you come across whatever it might be you'll notice <clears throat> depending on where you are with yourself will reflect is a ref- how it impacts you is a reflection of where you are with you if you're in a shitty place with yourself if you're in an insecure place if you're battling if you're struggling if you're depressed whatever that person whatever they have to say <clears throat> is going it's gonna it's gonna hurt it's gonna hurt more because maybe yeah. subconsciously you think there's some truth to it, as opposed to when you're right, when you're good, when you're confident, when you're in a good place, the entire world can tell you you suck. You don't give a shit. You don't care because you know where you are. You know you're in the right place. You know, like, you're wrong. And it bounces. You're like bulletproof at that point. 
and that all goes back to that's the that's that's where I can get a gauge as far as my own mental health is how much outside influences that I can't control how they affect me. If something tears me to shreds, like, dude, Luffy, you're not in a good place. If I don't give a rat's ass, it's because I'm in, I'm in a healthy, positive. It, it, this is great. Richie, I want to, I want to get to you on, I want to get to you on, on, on riders and, and social media, you know, to kind of bring this back a little bit to racing. Um, but, and I know you've had some, some, some social media bad battles as well. <laughs> But, you know, one of the things I want to say, because Lafitte, it's, it's funny, I, I forgot about it until you just said this. But like through social media, like as I started, you know, when I was on the show and, you know, I, I you know, I had the, you know, I had 110 followers the when I walked into uh, whatever bad hotel that was that the NHC was at. Yeah, that's a shot in TRA. Uh, Treasure <laughs> Island. When I walked into that horrible, uh, that horrible situation and I had that big day where I had two entries in the final table and I went from 110 followers, 70 of which were probably people who I had met when I was kind of hanging out with my brother while he was on tour, who's a big DJ. I didn't have any followers. I just was just a guy who's a fan. And then after that, I started to get more followers, more followers, more followers. And then as I got onto the Fox show, more followers, so on and so forth. But I had to kind of learn how to handle social media because social media is tricky. Um, and Lafitte, we sat at, you probably, I don't know, you know, it's funny what you remember with people that they probably don't remember, but it was so impactful to you is, you know, three or four years, two years ago, uh, as I started to kind of, you know, be more prominent on the show, there was that, that situation that most people who followed our network for a long time know about where Ken Rudolph and, and that, that uh, you know, the Barry Spears guy started, like, coming at me with the, like, not black enough thing. And, you know, it was a weird situation because, I you know, my, my father, uh, you know, lost my father. And um, it was like those two idiots saying things that was just them two. But it got it was I was so like charged by it. And I've always been, and anyone who knows me or sees me or whatever, they probably already can kind of tell, like I've, my whole life, I've just been the guy, you say something, I'm going to say something back. And the chances are, it's going to be more clever than what you said. And I win. And I, 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 I just was going to do, I, I, like my instinct was to kind of do that. And, and, and I did, and I, I got, I engaged with those two idiots for a long time about that for too long. Um, even like, even off air, like texting back and forth with Ken until finally I was like, yo, kick rocks my guy like you're good enjoy your time on tvg and you're welcome that you don't wear a tie anymore it's because i was cool enough to not wear a tie and now your bosses are letting you not wear a tie you're <laughs> welcome um but we sat down the feet one time at salivo on the patio just you and i outside and you said to me if if a homeless guy walked up right now and told you that you were ugly what would you do i was like well, i'd ignore them he said, well, why do you give people on Twitter so much attention? Why do you argue with them? And why do you engage with them? If it was real life, you wouldn't do so. Why do you do that? And I didn't, I couldn't give you an answer, but I stopped doing it at that moment. And social media does this weird thing to you where you feel like the opinion of one or the opinion of two or the opinion of three is the opinion of everyone. And it can really you know, run its toll on you, whether you're on TV or you're just, uh, you know, a, a guy who's got 300 followers and you're, you're, you're just, you like to talk about racing and you say something one day and then 
four people tell you you're the stupidest person in the world. That's just four people. And it seems like on your ratio of 300 versus four, it seems like a lot. But man, I had to really work through that. That was, that was, I talked to my therapist about social media and talked to my therapist about why do I feel the need to respond? Well, why do I have to respond? Why, why if someone says something, do I have to pop back? Why do I, and now, like, you know, why do I have to block someone if they say something? Why, like, you know, but like now, all I do now is I just mute people because I don't want to give them that satisfaction of, that's how I can get over it. I don't want them to feel satisfied that they've scored on me. Then I don't have to respond to them and I just let it go. But man, it was a, it was a huge battle for me at first that I had to kind of work through. Um, and Richie, I know, you know, I know you got off uh, once because you got off because of someone just being ugly and ridiculous about your family. And then you came back and, 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 and most of your tweets are positive. So I know that you probably get a lot of like annoying shit in the comments. Like, how do you, how, social media, how do you, how do you work through it? Well, it, it is difficult. I, you know, and I am a guy that um, I, I'm sensitive. I, I mean, whether I show it uh, the right way or not, I, I, I tend to be sensitive. Um, the reason I got off, it was I'm taking a shot at my daughter. I, and I just, there was nothing that was going to come up the way I was, gonna react and i just ah, the heck with this and I, I got off of it but um i like it i enjoy the engagement when my my thing now is if someone is incessantly negative i block them i just don't want the negativity i i, I think that you, you could discern the people that are just always gonna be opposite of the stance you take and and inject that negativity, whether it's to be annoying or to get a reaction or just to be, you know, an asshole. Um, so if I see somebody's just a negative person and, and with constant negativity, no use for it. Goodbye. Um, it, it's not easy though. Uh, I, I, I try hard not to engage on that level at all anymore. And maybe like Lafitte said, maybe I'm just in a better place. Um, this wasn't on social media, but I got a, a a rather nasty text from a, a high-profile bloodstock agent the day after the Eclipse Awards. I felt Epicenter deserved three-year-old champion. That's my opinion. I, I just put more stock in his resume, uh, you know, despite the fact that he had only one grade one win. Uh, I thought he ran in the most important races and his form all year carried through. Uh, I thought his Travers was a tour de force. I thought the Eclipse voters got it right. I get this nasty. I don't even really quite understand the insult, but it was obviously an insult. Um, and I just texted back. Um, I'm really not quite sure what that means. Uh, obviously, it's some sort of insult to me, but I wish you nothing but health, happiness and prosperity. And that's it. Like, you know, if, if uh, you know, I'm going to get upset because you felt compelled to be nasty with me, then we're going to have a lot of problems with a lot of people over time. So just, Hey, you know what? I wish you the best live, live a good life. Uh, I know where I've come from. I know what I've been through and I know where I am. So, you know, that, that, that's what you strive for, right. To, to, to get to a place where those kind of comments do roll off your back um, or slights or what could perceive as insults. You know, you, you talk about the generational thing. You know, my, my generation did not, you insulted me, we got a problem, right? 
Um, I, I grew up like in the Godfather household. You never tell hmm. anybody outside the family what you're thinking, <laughs> and you keep your 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 friends close, but your enemies closer, right? Like, um, so. But I I think that's a great point, Lafitte. It's it's a, a reflection of where you are at and how you're doing, how you handle those things. You imagine Michael Corleone in 2023 with a with a verified Twitter account you know um uh, maybe going to the mattresses <laughs> yeah, maybe luca brazzi could have seen it coming like you sleep with the fishes man um you know it doesn't take a lot of courage to love insults and anonymity and i'm sure you've had that experience that there are certain twitter tough guys that man like big full yawns when it comes to expressing opinion or attacking someone you know whether it is anonymity, whether they are doing so from an account of which their identity is revealed. Um, in most cases, probably saying things to someone that they wouldn't say face to face, where there actually might be different consequences. It's, it's you know, it social media. Um, and again, this is not the most popular opinion and this is also a, a generational thing and a hill i'm willing to die on but it, it's it's like one of the greatest oxymorons in like the history of great oxymorons it's more isolating and antisocial than it is social it's really more about social comparison the media part this is where the truth goes to die and where false narrative becomes reality unfortunately um and i think if we do an honest study and observe and it's bipartisan not to go in a political direction but like why in the 2020s did americans start hating each other was it a politician was it covid when you connect the dots i think at the at the nucleus will be will be social media in terms of why we're so divided um the isolation like I said, more social comparison um, than anything else. That's like more of the, the macro and not to go too far off on a tangent. The micro and bringing it back to this conversation and some of the emotional, mental challenges for writers in the social media conversation, Richie, do you think social media, how do you think it impacts or how do you think it impacts performance mindset for individual riders, knowing that this is always kind of hovering out there. And that if you make a mistake, like thousands of people who are going to let you know about it as if you don't feel bad enough already. Well, that's the thing, you know, yourself, you know, before anybody else, the mistake you made before they know the mistake you made. So then it's just piling on and, and making somebody feel you know, worse about it. Um, I, th I think, you know, I, the only way I can maybe answer this, and it wasn't an era with social media, it wasn't an era with Twitter and all this. Um, when I was riding well, I just didn't care what anybody thought. I just, it, it, I would do what I did and live with it. And it was okay because I was in a place, in a good place, as, as you talked about. Um, and, and so much so even owners, trainers, you know, they give you instructions. And in the moment now that that's not going to work here, we're doing this. 
And however it turned out, I was good with it. Um, when I wasn't riding well or I wasn't in a good place, uh, everything said was magnified. Um, or worse yet, you would make that split second, uh, maybe what if it's too late, that moment's gone, uh, you know, in the midst of a race. Um, and most of the time that hesitation would come from the criticism you thought you would get if it blew up on you, that, that, that move you instinctively wanted to make, you didn't make. So I do think it can inhibit instinct and it's a job that is relying on instinct. You need to be able to react without being encumbered with other people in your mind. And, um, you know, it's a little bit, this is off script here, off, you know, in a different direction, but it's a little bit like numbering how many times a rider can use the crop. Uh, If you're got to consciously think about that, you're inhibiting instinct. Sometimes a horse goes to do something. And in that moment, you know what you have to do to get their attention. But that split second, you go, oh, wait, I, I, can't, I can't because I got to use, you know, I, I've got five strikes and I can't use it up right now. It's too late. The horse has already ducked out or propped or did something that other people can't see visually, but you can feel instinctually. So I, I think if riders get too hung up with the whole social media aspect, it's going to inhibit their instinct. I got stuck on mute. It wouldn't be a, a in the money media podcast fighting it stuck on mute. It's funny, like I, I, you know, I've always I've always said that I feel like the 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 paces in New York. We talk about the paces in New York being you know the turf races. We we always hint to it that they're just looks like they're going to be these these meltdowns that never happen. Someone goes forty nine to the half. I, I think social media is part of the reason that that happened. And, and one of the things that kind of made me realize that was was a horse you know, kind of a lightning rod of, of controversy and hidden scroll. A lot of people thought he was really good. A lot of people thought he wasn't, but I remember that Florida Derby when Javier Castellano, uh, you know, or excuse me, the race before that, the fountain of youth, when he went really fast and got beat, um, the pace was, 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 was monstrous. And he got beat by a horse by the name of code of honor. Right. So, you go too fast and Not Code of Honor interrupt. Runs. Was it was it was it Javier or was it Joel? It was Joel then, but then oh, Javier, oh, Joel then, and then Javier comes back in the Florida Derby and tries to walk the dog on the front end, and Hidden Scroll gets run over. Now Hidden Scroll never turned out to be the horse that we all thought he was going to be, but I always felt like in that moment the reason Javier did that is because Joel got annihilated on social media yep. for going too fast, and. Yep. It's in, it's it's it, you know look I, I I try not to pay attention to it but if someone starts tweeting about all the favorites that I'm picking, which I have a completely logical explanation for that if you're wondering, don't tweet me just I'll explain it to you one day in person. <laughs> There's no nuance to Twitter, but when you start seeing something a lot, no matter what you do, it makes you think about what you're doing. It makes you question it because. We live in a world where there's a bunch of humans around us. And when a, a bunch of them start telling you something about yourself, you really start to kind of say, damn, I don't know. Is this right? I mean, there's a hundred people telling me this and I'm saying that I was right. Maybe I'm wrong. And, and I feel like Javier walked the dog that day because he saw the abuse that Joel got for going too fast. And I think that in New York, what happens now, because these riders are so engaged, Louie, Irad, Jose, Joel, Johnny, um, 
all of them, Kendrick, Manny. I feel like why take the chance to go 46 to the half and worry about getting off and letting the jo- the, 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 the trainer yell at you, the owner yell at you, and 300,000 of your closest friends yell at you on the internet. Why, why the hell <laughs> would you not just go 48? And if you get beat, the horse wasn't good enough. And I feel like, you know, and look, I'm not trying to make it all about the most important thing in the world is racing and the paces in a mile and a half turf race at, at Saratoga. But what I'm saying is, is that social media in general convinces us that things are more important than they are. And it also convinces us that we're wrong when that actually might not be the case. People are more afraid to make a st- make a mistake in general if it's in the public. It lives forever. For, I don't know, broadcasters 25 years ago, somebody could drop an F-bomb and somebody at home watching on a living room looks to the person next. Did they just say that? There's no way. Somebody said. And you just move forward. With DVR, with social media, this stuff, every <laughs> consonant is measured. It all, every mistake lives forever. And I think in some cases, playing it safe, playing not to lose as opposed to playing to win, not wanting to take enough chances because Big Brother's always watching. Whether it's, you know, it's there consciously or subconsciously. And I, Look, I'm just glad growing up, being a kid is hard enough. I'm glad I didn't have to go through high school as like weaponizable as social media is for bullying and that kind of thing. Um, I'm glad I, I, I'm glad I didn't have to do so. And for parents raising children now, as if that isn't difficult enough, what an unbelievable challenge that must be when the, the parents realize that. You know, Kim Kardashian has as much influence on your kids as you do. All yeah. of the different social media platforms and trying to raise a child to be a good person, to do the right thing, to make the right choices must be harder than ever. Well, Go guys, ahead. you got you to let me adjust a little bit of this because, first of all, feed, I'm just glad I didn't have to go through high school at all. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, the other thing about it, and, and, and this is where like I got to really be careful and not respond on, on social media. It's just the things you're talking about, Jonathan, with you know people interjecting. Why didn't he go faster? Why didn't he go slower? People need to look at things bigger picture, too. Again, Jockey being the most visible part of the team is going to take the brunt of criticism, just like they're going to take the majority of credit or get the majority of credit when a horse you know wins a big race. But look at how horses are trained in new york every trainer wants their horse to go off the first quarter in 25 and come home the last quarter in 23. so they're training them to run the way they run in the afternoon and compound that with the fact that every trainer wants to micromanage and put a headset on a rider and tell them in the morning when they're working a horse how fast or slow they're going so they're not giving these people an opportunity to develop the clock in their head and keep it tuned so that when you're working a horse without someone in the year going, okay, you just went the first eighth in 12 and three, you can feel what 12 and three is. You can feel what 12 is. You can feel what 11 and four is. So trainers trying to micromanage so much, I think are, are 
inhibiting a generation of riders from developing the kind of clock in the head that every rider had in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, I remember the end, towards the end of my career, I, I'm working horse with John Kimmel. He's a dear friend of mine. Comes out with a headset. I took my helmet off. I handed him the helmet. He says, what's this? I said, why don't you work them yourself too? <laughs> you can't You can't make riders. you got to let guys do their job. Don't micromanage so much. And the public needs to be aware of the fact that, hey, horses are trained like that in New York. I got to California. The first horse I worked in California, I went off at 25, came home at 23, thought it was a great work. Got yelled at. What was that? Was something wrong with the horse? Why'd you go so slow early? They train to make them zippy and go fast early. So it's a bigger picture. It's never just one thing. It's usually a confluence of things that creates these situations. It's funny you say that when it comes to 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 like a the the some of the trainers. Yeah, some of them by nature are probably micromanagers. But the other thing too about that, like in someone like John's defense, is like, you know, when he's got three owners that mean the world to him and his operation, you know, and they start becoming more quote unquote knowledgeable because of social media, because of someone saying the horse worked poorly, the horse worked backwards, all these things. It's a big circle of a bunch of people that don't know what the hell they're talking about saying they know what the hell they're talking about and then influencing other people in how they do their business. Right. It's like, and, 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 and that's the one thing that like, I've just tried to get better at is like, man, I've, I've, I've played this game for a long time. I've thought about it for a long time. I know what I think is important. And if they come to me with 30 seconds to talk or 45 seconds to talk, I'm going to do my best to be entertaining and to say what I think I can in the 45 seconds I'm given. Now, you cut out Maggie and Acacia. You tell Lafitte to shut up with his feature. I'll tell you all about how to efficiently bet the pick five. <laughs> but that's not a it's not a good show. And and I had to it took me a long time to like, not that I ever complained about that, but it took me a long time to like realize that like the seven people on the internet that made fun of my pick five tickets aren't important. And it it messes with me. It still does mess with me. I'll tell our producer sometimes like Ev, man, like I don't, you know, Bobby T I don't make me do a pick five today, man. I don't really have a strong opinion and I don't want to spread in this leg. And the reason that I'm saying that I'm being very honest with you is because I don't want to listen to the seven people on Twitter talk shit that I hit the all button in a sequence that I'm not even playing in real life. And like, thank God our producers like allow us to not do that. But the problem is, is that social media and the outside influence, it's not even our influence. It, it does impact the way that you think. And, and I'll use this as a story just to kind of wrap. Something I haven't really talked about a whole lot because it was like, I didn't want to seem like it was sour grapes, but it had a pretty big impact on me mentally. And something I talked about in therapy and something that I worked through a lot. And, 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 I, and I'll encourage you two to kind of wrap this mental health conversation up the way that you see fit as well. But like, you know, uh, I guess it was a year ago, about a year ago when that whole NHC thing happened, you know, um, and I was, you know, in Florida, I was supposed to be in Vegas, blah, blah, blah. but like, you know, that night I was frustrated. I was annoyed. I was upset. Um, I was defensive because I knew that everyone, you know, I, I was already seeing people start tweeting and saying, oh, cheating, 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 whatever. And I started to, and, and I, I tweeted that night and this is like kind of what helped me change some of the shit I do social media wise i tweeted that night i'm done being nice or something um 
you know, like whatever. And the insinuation was that I was going to like let out all this stuff. And, and, and the idea in that moment, which was like, I was, I felt backed into a corner. And so I was fighting back and I was popping back, which is what social media does to us. It makes you feel like you have to defend yourself you because this public forum, there's this, 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 this thing that's happening. And, and it's not just me, right? It's like a, a, a woman who posts a, a, a bikini picture with her friends and some asshole in the comment says, do some sit-ups, honey, or some shit like that. Like there's this need to, to then look at his page and, and make fun of how fat he is and point out the fact he's got a lot of nerve, but it's a cycle of like really pulling you down into this moment. And and I, I, I said that I was going to say all these things. And then the next morning I had to wake up with the reality that like, you know, the world like thinks I was cheating and then making sure I don't say the wrong thing. And then having to worry about people like saying I shouldn't be able to work on the show anymore and, and, and all these things. And it's like social media is not that important and it's not the real world. And if you allow it to be that, it will really, really, really take over your mental health and it'll affect you in a lot of different ways. It'll cause you to act out of character. It'll cause you to do things and to worry about things that you shouldn't worry about. And, you know, if it wasn't for our, my career, like what I do, I wouldn't, I think I'm at the point of my life where I wouldn't have it. I really wouldn't. And, um, and it's because I just take a lot more, I take, I put a lot more stock into the people around me and things that really matter, like raising my son, maintaining uh, the healthiest possible relationship I can with my ex-wife and my, my son's mother and, 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 and having the best relationship I can with my fiance and my in-laws and trying to have a better relationship with my mother and trying to have great relationships with my friends. And like, shit that really matters, you know, that really is at the end of the day, like my mental health, like what it is that makes it easier to get out of bed and what makes it easier to sleep at night and all these things. And it's like, man, it's, 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 it's the reason I feel like I'm as far as I am, which isn't as far as I need to be is because I have tried to take a step back from what really matters in the world in terms of social media and and other things, but also really focusing on sharing and talking and saying things out loud and, and talking to someone else and talking to friends and talking to a therapist about the shit that's on my brain so that I can get it off of my brain and, and try to have a healthy and happy life. And, we- and I, I, I just want to encourage everyone to strive for finding happiness within yourself and like do whatever you have to do. And don't be scared to take those, those, those leaps in, into darkness. Well said, we can't do, our job like without social media to an extent you can't always be the last to know every time something important happens it's just not realistic um there are great things about social media and bringing awareness and to this cause that we're discussing uh, charities fundraising like it's not all bad and i want want to give like that particular impression um but just keep in mind and to just follow up on what you just said um if it's that important to you to begin with social media in general, that needs to be looked at. And the more you're impacted by the opinion of those on social media, how much it affects you, that's what you need to look at. Why is this bothering me so much? That's an indication of where you are with yourself. It has nothing to do with what anybody else is saying. 
but the impact on you is going to give you a better idea of where you're at. Maybe you need to take a little bit of a closer look within. They all great points, guys. Um, one thing I would say that kind of wraps this, you know, th this whole conversation up with is care about each other. Uh, be in the moment, you know, be present, pay attention, um, and, and, and don't be afraid. Be brave enough to, to ask for help if you feel like you need it. Uh, you know, maybe that's the act of bravery you need to, to get yourself where you need to be or at least a step in the right direction that way. But uh, it, it all begins with, with looking out for each other. And, and look, I usually kind of wrap these things up like, you know, I just say goodbye to you guys and then I kind of do this little like minute thing at the end. But I kind of want to do that minute thing now with you guys here. But, you know, I think the, the point of this conversation to kind of wrap it up and I'll also say this at the beginning so that people know what they're getting themselves into. You know, I think we wanted to with what happened with Avery Wisman, we wanted to, to touch base on the life of, of, of a rider because it is such an important part of our game. This game doesn't happen without these riders and the sacrifices that they make physically, mentally. And, you know, I, these three people on this show, especially Richie are, are big believers in, and, and both of you guys, Lafitte as well have, have reason to be this way, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a horse player, full on horse player. And that's how I got into this game. But I, I, I do get frustrated when as fans and as play horse players, we're unfair to riders. Um, I just want this conversation to maybe let you think a little bit more about the next time you get snapped in a pick five and you want to jump on Twitter and blame it on IRAD. Uh, yeah, maybe it was IRAD's fault, but IRAD also got your ass home in the first leg. So let's just, let's just maybe pull back a little bit on that and understand that they're humans that are really kind of going through something. And, and not to downplay what you're going through, but likely their lives outside of the financial portion of it are just as hard or harder from the things that they have to, to overcome and, and, and the mental stresses of, of that job. Um, and then the other part is like, we wanted to just normalize the conversation about three people talking about mental health and talking about dark moments in their lives and things that were going on. And, and the reason we wanted to do that is because you see Lafitte's face You've watched uh, Richie ride. You've 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 seen my face, and and we wanted to kind of bring that to a situation to kind of let you see people that you've seen talk about things that you didn't think maybe they would talk about. Um, and, and our hope is that uh, that that someone who's listened to this will will call a friend who's struggling. Um, someone who's listening to this will log on and 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 grab some some health care, mental health care. Uh, I don't give a shit. I'll tell you, I, I, I've used this thing called better help. It's like a online deal. They, they sponsor podcasts too. I should have hit them up for this one. <laughs> um, they, they, they're not sponsoring this one, but they, it's a, you just, you play it, you just, you're online and you just have a you, you FaceTime and you just talk and, and you can, you can do it from your phone. I've, I've done it. I've done it uh, driving before, which is probably illegal in most States, but you can, there's easy ways to do it. You don't have to even necessarily do that deal where you, 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 you go into someone's office and like Lafitte said, lay on some couch, which is kind of fun to do, to be honest. I've done that before too. 
Um, but Jonathan, can I can I interject? Yeah, sure, something? absolutely. Just, uh, you, you know, obviously, I'm going to gear it towards riders, but I think this is in general. Like, as a rider, when you're doing well, a lot of people are around you that maybe don't have your best interests at heart. They 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 seem to kind of come out of the woodwork. And then when you're not doing well, or you're in a slump. I'll speak for myself. I tended to withdraw and I felt like I was letting everybody else down. I was disappointing people. And then people that actually do care about you stop reaching out because they feel like they don't want to be a burden to you or, or infringe on it. Infringe, reach out. Somebody had a bad day. Somebody blew a race. Somebody blew a, a you know, a, a, a catch, a, a block, whatever that you're, if you're friends with, reach out. Hey man, know you had a tough day. I'm here. That's it. Just that they know you care because the more isolated you get, that's where you fall into that, that hole that's harder to climb out of. I love it. So if you've made it with us on this hour and 50 some odd minute journey, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, if you didn't need this conversation, but you listened to it, we appreciate you. If you want to, you know, but maybe it'll help you tell a friend who might have needed this conversation or, Hey, check this thing out. These guys talking uh, about this stuff. And uh, we encourage you to talk to your friends and family about all of this. It's, it's a, uh, it's an important part of life that we all deal with in one way or another. And uh, like I said, we're, we appreciate you joining us on this journey and, and Lafitte, um, Richie, you guys know I love you to death and I appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, talk about this uh, very personal topic. Same, brother, and to both of you. Um, it's a safe place um, to have this conversation. I appreciate both of you um, and and along with your listeners, just thank you to, to both of you. Really much appreciated. And if this conversation made a difference to, to one person, one person as cliche as it sounds, it's, it's well worth it. Well, I love you guys. Uh, I can't wait to see you again and uh, look forward to uh, a good summer with you. Fellas. I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Um, thank you everyone who listened. I, I don't think that this episode really needs to have a whole long drawn out by, I think it kind of stands, um, on its own. Uh, thank you everyone for the support. Please share this, this, this one as well. There's all the other ones as well, but this one in particular, this is, we wanted to do this because we wanted someone to hear it that needed to hear it, or we wanted someone to hear it that needed to help someone that needed to hear it. So we, we hope that, uh, this message got across in the right way. way. I want to thank everyone involved with the network. You know who you are, uh, PTF drew and everyone else involved. Uh, I'll save the, uh, the silly goodbye for another time. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And uh, if you need help, get it. If you know someone needs help, give it to them. Um, And uh, yeah, take care of each other and we'll see you next week. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk.